Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. But survival depends on drastic measures. Your continued existence represents a threat to the well-being of society. Your lives mean slow death to more valued members of the colony. Therefore, I have no alternative but to sentence you to death. Your execution is so ordered, sign Kodos of Tarsus This is strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. If I turn that on and hit that button right, I get to talk to you. It is hour three of Bill McLive on a Tuesday morning. The 14th day of February 2023. Happy Valentine's Day for those of you who celebrate such things. We celebrate history on these Tuesdays in this 8 o'clock hour. And to do that, we bring in our buddy Dave Bowman from Silverdale, Washington for what we call Dave Does History. We've got links to Dave's podcast and his bibliography for his history stuff at BillMick.com. The show page today entitled, Go on Strike, Feel the Results. Those kids at Tulane, adults at Tulane who are still playing at being kids, thinking they should be entitled to, uh, oh, whatever it is they're getting is compensation for being graduate assistants. And even though they're on strike and not doing the job, that's kind of funny. Anyway, it's in the first hour podcast. You'll find the podcast later at BillMick.com and on the Bill Mick Live iHeartRadio channel. Dave Bowman, how are you today, sir? I'm having a happy Valentine's Day. Well, good. I'm glad you are. Uh <laughs> And it's awful early in the morning, too, so good for you. Well, my wife's out of town, so. Well, then we'll not tell her you're having a happy Valentine's <laughs> right. Day. Maybe, it's maybe a good plan. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to be lamenting that she's not there so you can express your love. Yes, I can. I am. She's uh, she's doing great. I bought her some flowers, took them with her, and it's great. Oh, very, very cool. Good. Well, you know, I've never met Kim, but she seems like a sweet lady. Yes, she is. Is, uh, okay. She's perfect. What else are you going to say, Dave? It's on the radio. It's yeah. on a podcast. She'll hear it yeah. at some point. Yeah. Right? Well, I, we I did talk about some things on the What the Frog podcast this weekend that had her asking me questions. So. Uh-oh, anyway. that's good. I, I'm only 20 minutes into that, so I'll have to catch up and see yeah. what's going on. That'll be fun. Of course, you can catch all of Dave's podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Just look for the Dave Bowman Show or Plausibly Live. Uh, we'll get you there. Dave, what are we doing history-wise today, my friend? Bill, what makes Star Trek the original series? Now, as you know, I don't particularly care for the other shows, but what what is it that makes Star Trek the original series so great? Any ideas? That is Wagon Train to the Stars. The Roddenberry had a great idea, and he made it about people, and he made it about relationships. Made it about stories. Yeah. But the biggest thing, the the biggest philosophical difference between Star Trek, the original series, and most modern science fiction is the type of thinking that's, that goes behind it. Star Trek, the original series, and, and from this point forward, when I say Star Trek, I just mean the original series. Um, okay. We'll just stipulate that, okay? Uh, the thinking is very utopian. The future is very bright. In fact, it's so bright we have to wear shades because things, while they're not perfect, are getting better every day. As opposed to the dystopian thinking in most science fiction today which is the, some post-apocalyptic world where right. alien races are out to have humans for lunch or whatever or everything's going to hell in a handbasket hey wait that's yeah. a segment on the show um <laughs> you know where people are, are treating each other worse and worse and things are getting you know e- even 1984 the book by george orwell is is kind of very um 
very depressing. And it gets to mm-hmm. the point where, you know, one of the reasons I watch Star Trek is because it is positive. Even when it takes on very negative things, Star Trek tends to put it in a very positive mode. Part of the reason for that is Star Trek was made about a generation after the end of World War II. The Holocaust was really coming to mind. It, it, the Holocaust really became front thinking in the early 1960s when Alfred, when Alfred, Adolf Eichmann was captured and put on trial, and everybody openly saw all of this stuff that had happened. And so here we are a generation later with this TV show that's taking on these very negative things in contemporary culture and putting a very positive spin on them. The problem is that most of history, when it's used interpretively, the opposite happens. So we'll take something in history that was, if not positive, at least not as negative as it's portrayed, and we start using it in negative ways and for negative logic and negative reasoning. And this leads to destructive policies and destructive interpretations of history. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is that nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything is action and reaction. Nothing ever just happens. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to explain to people, but action and reaction go hand in hand, and usually with very unpredictable results. And we pick it up in 60 seconds on Bill McLaughlin. One of our sponsors on the program is Chateau Madeline. It's resort-style senior living and men care, centrally located in Suntree, locally owned, and a place where life can get better with a real beautiful home and first-class nursing care. The website, SuntreeSeniorLiving.com. You can give it a good look there, but even better, give them a call and take a tour. If you've got a senior loved one and this is an eventuality for them, you want to see Chateau Madeline. You want to see the staff interacting with the residents there. You want to test and try the food, which is out of this world, by the way. Call them at 321-701-8000 for Chateau Madeline. We appreciate their sponsorship here on the program. Dave Bowman with us with Dave Does History. So um, a little action and reaction, Dave, and unpredictable results when it occurs. Where are you taking us here? Let's go back a few weeks. You had a caller, and I, you're going to have to forgive me. I don't remember the date. I do remember that you, I, and Rod had quite the conversation about it afterwards on the text machine, mm-hmm. you had a caller that brought up the Pope that issued the papal bull that resulted in the, the killing of cats throughout Europe. Yeah, I remember the call, sure. So this actually happened. This really did happen. One of the popes issued a papal bull that did not tell people to kill cats. What it told them was that cats are, quote, familiars of the devil, unquote, particularly black cats. Now, millions of Europeans read this and went, well, if cats are familiars of the devil, black cats, then other cats are related to those black cats, so they might be servants of the familiars of the devil. We should get rid of all the cats. And they started to kill cats. They started to eradicate cats in Europe right around the time ships were arriving, carrying rats, which had been infected with the bubonic plague. So you could argue that the end result of the Pope's papal bull was that millions of Europeans died of the bubonic plague. And it was a fact, papal plague. You could argue that. And in fact, okay. many people do. 
But if you were to go to the planet of the Guardian of Forever, step through the, the time porthole there and go back to that date and say to the Pope, hey, don't do that. If you do that, millions of people are going to die. What changes? Does anything actually improve? Does anything actually get better? Well, that's if like you're going back stop? and killing Hitler if you could, right? Right. What if so there's Hitler somebody the worse? Maybe you don't have Hitler. Well, what if there's somebody worse? Yeah. And this is the problem. We we assume that things would be better, but the the entropic effects, that is the the fact that all systems decline, tell us that that's simply not the case. That that just because we stop that papal bull doesn't mean there aren't priests or archbishops or whatever out there saying, Hey, cats are the familiars of the devil and you should get rid of them. Nor does it nor does it take into account the fact that cats, by the way, are in fact some of the most um I, I've forgotten the word for it. I want to say virulent, but that doesn't that's not correct. Uh, there are some of the, transmitters. Yes. They are uh -huh. some of the best carriers of the bubonic plague in, in, in the first place. So if the cats hadn't or hadn't been eradicated, how do we know that the bubonic plague, the black death, is even worse because now you not only have rats carrying it around, biting people, now you have cats. And if you own a cat, you know what I'm talking about, scratching you and biting you and nipping at you, all infected with the bubonic plague. How do we know that millions more don't die because of this? So in that vein, maybe the Pope was right to, to declare cats the familiars of the devil and try to get rid of them. Can you see that argument? So is what you're saying here is that all these decisions are made in the blind anyway, no matter how well intended they may be? They're not made in a vacuum, but they all have equal part reaction and, and action. And what happens is we start interpreting things. We look at this, oh, the papal bull issued the cats. The cats weren't there to kill the rats. Therefore, the Pope killed millions of people, is the argument goes. But when we start to really look at it, we discover that that may not necessarily be the case. And in fact, maybe if we hadn't killed the cats, things could have been worse. Which, by the way, is the same argument that Kodos the Executioner uses in Star Trek when he says, I had to kill half the people because if I didn't, all the people would die. I remember that, yeah. Is it a right argument? Is it a bad argument? Is it a good argument? We start getting into these moral dilemmas where nothing is, as I said, happening in a vacuum. And that's what causes us to sometimes take the, the issue at hand, misinterpret it, and then misapply it going forward. You mean like knee-jerk reactions by legislative bodies when things like Parkland happen or Michigan State last night happened, so now we've got to do something, even if it is wrong? Yeah, in, in many ways. That's very, very similar, isn't it? Yeah, it does seem that way. Dave Bowman with us for this edition of Dave Does History as we're taking a look basically at unintended or unforeseeable, maybe, consequences that decisions, as he says, are not made in the vacuum. We're not talking in a vacuum either. We'll let you in on it in our final segment of the day. But uh, stick around. Dave, always with interesting perspectives from history that give us a few lessons for today while we're at it. It's what we do on Tuesdays on Bill McLive. Hey, this is Whitey. And this is Hank. 
And you can listen to our podcast, Two Pint Talk, on all your favorite podcast sources. So come check it out where we talk about two beers and, and everything stuff. <laughs> listen to Two Pint Talk on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, on with the show. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Dave Does History, our weekly journey through the Wayback Machine. Dave Bowman is with us on Bill Mick Live. We talked a little fictional history, and we've talked uh, unintended consequences. Dave, where are we going now with this trip? I, I guess it's the 1790s we're going to. Indeed. Let us go back to the 1790s, the mid-1790s, when life was great and everybody was happy, right? I'm guessing no. No. <laughs> in fact, in France, they were cutting people's heads off almost as quickly as they they possibly could. And this is an interesting event. You know, we talk about things not happening in a vacuum. The French Revolution has a massive effect on America. It really splits the country uh, into two segments, uh, one very pro-French led by Jefferson, one very anti-French led by John Adams. And they become, the, the political battles over that are incredible. But in England... The fear, because remember, England is a monarchy. And here's a country that has just uh, executed the king. England's already done that once. And now anarchy is reigning. And there's this, this absolute fear amongst the gentry and the political classes of a French-type rebellion in England. And I don't think we, I don't think we comprehend how deeply that fear was. But eventually... The economics of the situation result in prices being raised on food in England. And the bread gets so expensive that the working classes can't afford it. So what's the solution? The British come up with this haphazard system called the Speen-Hamlin system, in which local governments, this is never a national policy, but the local governments start taking money, taxing from the landed gentry, the landowners, give us some of your money, we'll buy bread and grain, and we will give it, dole it out to the, to the lower working classes, and that way they won't rebel and cut your head off. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So, what you have here is a system of government giveaways. But it's locally based, not national. It's supported. If you're going to do something, the local way would be the way to do it, you would think, right? You would. Rather than big national programs. You would think, but keep in mind, this is also kind of the early part of the very progressive era. So the big government in London is looking at this going, we have to do something, mm -hmm. you know, because we got to protect the king. The idea, the Speen-Hamlin system, is actually lukewarmly supported by the landowners because they're afraid of the, the, the rebellion from the lower classes in England. At the same time, 
They hate it because it takes money from their coffers. They're being taxed, although it's not really a tax. They're just being basically held up by the local government saying, give us your money so that we can protect you. But they also like it because they can look at this and go, well, since we're being taxed for this, we're going we're gonna to pay you less for your work because you're getting bread from, from the government. So we're, it's depressing wages at the same time. Mm. So they kind of like that. They kind of don't like it. But everybody's nervous about getting their heads cut off. And that's why they come up with this system known as the Spean Hamlin system. And it's that system that is going to change history in a lot of ways. And we'll talk about that in just 30 seconds. Dave does history on Bill Make Live, and uh, as he does so, we, there, I got a, had a button that wasn't on. Dave does history on Bill Make Live, and uh, glad Dave is along with us as we're taking a look at a system in Great Britain now where decisions not made in a vacuum affecting all parts of the economy, Dave, get us into it. Mm. I was thinking about buttons and Valentine's Day, but that's another story for another day. So, <laughs> The Spean-Hamlin system is maintaining the status quo, but it's also depressing wages, which is ticking off the workers, but it's keeping them fed, which is keeping them calm. Parliament notices this, the prime minister notices this, and they, they propose a new law to basically nationalize the Spean-Hamlin system to provide workhouses and that sort of thing. And this law gets some unexpected support. There's a young reverend in the area who also studied economics. When he was at school, he went to uh, Christ College at Cambridge, got got his degree in economics and was ordained, and he is a well-known reverend in the area. He he, he writes a pamphlet which supports the government's so-called poor laws that are being... Uh, proposed for the moment and in this in this pamphlet he really praises the idea of government helping out with with this stuff of government providing for food to the populations and it seems a very very religious oriented mentality it's a very what you would expect i guess from from a reverend of that era but for some reason, and we don't really know why, he doesn't publish the pamphlet. The pamphlet goes unpublished, although we have copies of it. It, it, it never gets widely distributed. And in Parliament, the poor laws, which are essentially raising taxes on the middle class and upper classes, particularly the middle class, because that's what you do, um, it goes down in defeat. And so nothing changes in England, and the Spean-Hamlin systems around the country stay into effect with the intention of preventing a France, a French rebellion-type situation, thus saving the lives of the landed gentry and the crown and maintaining the status quo. But this young reverend who's watching all this is in the middle of developing a very, very influential theory. And he's going to publish this theory in 1798. It will become one of the most controversial, most impactful, and I guess as devastating as the papal bull that 
eliminated cats in some ways. Every population control idea that you have ever heard in the last 200 years comes from this reverend who writes this pamphlet in 1798. His name is Thomas Malthus. And he is born this day, February 14th, 1766. This is his birthday, which is why it shows him. His theory, you've probably heard it referred to as Malthusian, mm-hmm. is the idea, very simply put, the idea that populations have to be controlled. At least, that's what we're told that the theory is, that as human population increases, food production can't keep up, and consequently, bad things happen. So you're talking about controlling the numbers of people, not what the population itself does, but how many there are. Exactly. The The theory, the neo-Malthusian theory today goes, we got to uh, we got to rein in population because if we don't, the earth is going to die. There's too many people. Have you heard this? We've oh, got, yeah. we have to, we have to put, uh, contraceptives. This was actually proposed by one person in the early seventies. We have to put contraceptives in the water supply. And you should have to have a permit from the government to have any children at all because population, as Malthus predicted, is outstripping food production. And we'll check it more in a moment. So I'm a cat, and I just moved in with this new human, and she's got this little toy she's always playing with, all day long. Tap, 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 bloop, bloop. She can't put it down. There it is. Oh, and get this. She even talks to it. Last week, she asked it for Chinese, and guess what? Egg roll showed up, like magic. Humans have cool toys. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Every day has a call of the day, and it could be you. Call Bill at 321-768-1240 and add your perspective to the conversation on Bill Mick Live. Yesterday's call of the day was uh, a new Mike in Melbourne. You, you people have too many similar names. From now on, if we've already got a Mike, you got to pick a new name. And just because you think it's the same old Mike, and it's not. The same old Mike is in the running for call of the day today. Could be you, and we're getting ready to open up the phones to you to talk a little history with Dave Bowman here, as Dave does history on Bill Mick Live. 321-768-1240 lets you do it. So this Malthusian theory, Dave, says uh, the population grows. We can't keep up with food production. So what are we going to do, and how's it impact what's going on? Well, it, the theory, like you said, human population increases, food production can't keep up. This cause always causes war or famine. Now, this is taken in the 20th century by what are known as Neo-Malthusians, and people like Paul Ehrlich, in his book, The Population Bomb, start talking about the population growth as a cancer. And if you just treat the symptoms, it may make the victim more comfortable, but eventually he dies. 
But a similar fate awaits the world with a population explosion if only the symptoms are treated. We must shift our efforts from the treatment of the symptoms to cutting out the cancer. So if the cancer is too many people, this may appear to be brutal and heartless, a la Kodos the Executioner, and the pain may be intense, but this will solve the problem, he writes in 1968. This idea that... Is this the first Green New, Green New Deal? No, I don't think it's the first one, but it, it certainly is the one that, you know, in 1968 began a, a lot of the, the more modern thought about it. Abortion. Mm-hmm. Every argument for abortion is based in Neo-Malthusian, you know, thought. We, we Population destruction, population decrease, you know, we... We're, we're, how many times have you seen this argument in the last year about how having an abortion is a good thing because I'm not bringing a child into the world to make the world worse? Mentality. Mm-hmm. This, this theory leads to a lot of destruction and a lot of belief in various means of, of population control across the board, which is absolutely weird because, much like the Pope and his bull, Malthus didn't believe in population control, at least not in the way that these people are talking about. He wrote population when unchecked increases these things, but he had the idea of positive checks and preventative checks. Positive checks, such as disease, war, famines, genocides, are factors which Malthus believed would increase the death rate automatically. But you could also use preventative checks, which were things like moral restraint, abstinence, and birth control, which were ideas that were unheard of, really, reverends didn't talk about those kinds of things in the 1790s, you just didn't, you know, you you, you really didn't put that out there. But he believed that teaching people to control their impulses would be a better solution than just, as Paul Ehrlich, Ehrlich will later come up with, excising the cancer from the whole world. Ultimately, nothing happens in a vacuum, Bill. And you have this this war, this revolution in France that causes economic uphill in England, upheaval in England, which leads to the government's ideas about social welfare, which causes this reverend to write this this theory, which by the way, you know, gets ignored. As far as his observations, they just take the baseline of his theory, which is population growing bad, therefore we must cut population. And that leads to modern things like the population bomb, abortion, and virtually every population control measure that you've heard of in the last 250 years comes out of this interpretation of what's called the Malthusian crunch, this idea that population grows too fast, and out it goes. All this uh, brought to us by a guy who was born on Valentine's Day in 1766, Thomas Malthus. Interesting. And I lost it. Just that quickly, I lost it. We're back in 60 seconds. Dave does history. Your call's coming up on Bill McLeod. So, Dave, it came to me that even this unpublished theory got out there enough that it made changes that are even impactful today. Well, this theory was actually published. It was his. It was his defense of the government system that wasn't published. So, okay. But yeah, and it, you know, it just strikes me as odd because one of the more fascinating discussions I've been in in the last week, because I'm weird and I'm a nerd and a Star Trek geek, 
was an argument about whether or not Kodos was right, you know, in executing half the population in a science fiction book. Well, if you actually read Malthus's theory, it's not a bad starting point. But at no point does he advocate killing people or culling the population. Mm-hmm. But somehow or another, that theory has become, let us, uh, let us cull populations. And we refer to these people as Malthusians, which is, is kind of unfair because Malthus himself never advocated for that. In fact, I think he would have been appalled by it. Yeah, it but that's like the way history him. goes. Let's get to the phones. Line one, you're on Bill McLive with Dave Bowman. Good morning. Hey, hey, Dave and Bill. Um, how about your buddy Bill Gates? He wants to reduce the population by 80%. Doesn't say how, but it's along the lines of what you guys are talking about. There's got to be a humane way to get rid of 80% of the people on the planet, right? You have a suggestion, Steve? I, I don't I don't know. I I was thinking of put taking the woke people and have them go fight in the Ukraine war. I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing out ideas here. <laughs> that could be a way to go, Dave. Any thoughts there? Well, you could certainly make that argument that Gates's theory of, re, of of population reduction comes from a neo-Malthusian ideology. I, I don't know that Bill Gates knows that. I don't know that he's ever sat down and gone, yeah, no, Thomas Malthus said we should do this a long time ago. But I'm sure he's heard that at some point because we all have. We've all heard this idea that we have to reduce population. In communist China, or as I refer to it, West Taiwan, they have operated under that theory for years. Mm-hmm. And it is it really about population reduction or is it about population control and maintaining power? And that's... You know, that's where you end up on a lot of this stuff is that um, it's really about maintaining power as opposed to actually saving anything. Because, again, Malthus was very clear about he believed that population growth was the key to a successful society. But somehow or another, that's been turned into by other people. It's been turned into the idea that we have to call 80 percent of the population or 40 percent of whatever, whatever percentage whatever nut job is out there talking about at that particular point by that amount. And and what frustrates me is that like the Pope being blamed for the cats, mm-hmm. Malthus born this day in 1776, happy, happy Thomas Malthus birthday and Valentine's day. He's blamed for this. And yet that really wasn't his idea. This was the, this was people taking his idea and turning it into a, a, a way of controlling people a Spean Hamlin system, as it were, of population control. And he would have not been happy about that. I could see that. Dave, in those days, you had very contemplative people who, like Malthus, would write their theories, would write their pamphlets, would be published, would be. It, it seems like we had better thinkers than we've got today, more long term thinkers, whether they paid attention to them or not that people at least thought out what they were proposing to some conclusion down the road, and it got perverted by some, or it, it was followed truly. But our, our, especially in our lawmakers, are we not seeing that ability be an exercise? Well, I have two theories about that. My, my number one theory is that I don't think people think that much anymore. They, they react to popular opinion. Mm-hmm. 
So you post a meme that says something that's completely false, but it sounds good. And all of a sudden, people are talking about the meme. Oh, this is right. This is beautiful. This is whatever. And not thinking about the actual ideas behind it. The other problem that we have is, and I, you know, I've been harping on this for years, Bill, and that is that our political thinking class of today, not just politicians, but political thinking class, is grossly uneducated. They do not know history. They do not know why things were done the way that they were done. And because Mm -hmm. of that, they assume that had they been there, we would have done it better. They don't understand how things got to where they are. And that causes them to make false conclusions about things that they haven't thought through. By by way of pure example, right now there's a movement in this country to do away with the electoral college, right? We've all heard Mm -hmm. of this national public vote, popular vote, sorry. Who do you hear arguing against that? All you hear is how great this idea is. Republican senators used to do commercials for it. Because this is a great idea. This is democracy. This is this is what we're supposed to be. And not one of them can answer the question, well, if that's what we were supposed to be, why didn't they make it that way? And when you ask them that question, what you get is gears grinding or you get yelled at because you are not, you're not, you know, part of the team. You're not doing things the right way. You're a bigot. You're whatever. You want to suppress votes. Which mm-hmm. is totally the opposite. I and mean, it's Malthus in action. It's here you take this theory that really describes how populations work and you turn it into something that it never was, which is the idea of population control. I think it's an educational well, quick problem. Call before we're done, Dave, line one, you're on Bill McLive. Good morning. Well, it's nice to hear some uh, quotes from the Conscience of the King episode. Yeah, absolutely. Star Trek. Um, I, I I believe uh, either Peter Singer or um, the other person you mentioned uh, uh, talking about the population bomb was on 60 Minutes like in the last two months after almost everything that they've uh, advocated has been uh, disproven. Somehow he got on 60 Minutes again. I, I want to say Peter Singer. And? Well, just wondering... Uh, your thoughts on how this stuff is still getting out there. I think a lot of it goes back to what Dave was saying, that we um, aren't thinkers, that we grab onto what sounds like a positive idea, and folks run with it. Dave, thoughts there? Yeah, I would say the same thing. I mean, I haven't watched 60 Minutes in 30 years, so I couldn't say who's been on it or who hasn't been on it. But yeah. This is a popular, this is a, a, a thought that people go, okay, well, the earth is dying. We're the problem. This is, how many times have we seen this very scenario as a plot to TV shows and movies? We've got to do this. And so someone comes along who's still spouting that and still fighting the good fight to to control population. Of course, they're going to be on 60 Minutes because they don't have anything, you know, actually. They got to, an hour to cover something, right? They got to do it. Dave Bowman, Dave Does History. Appreciate all the effort, my friend. Look forward to next week. We'll see you on Tuesday.